Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy with simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Rapunzel creates excitement and encourages financial education. Check out their free mobile app and the interviews of Brian and Miles in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Episode 13, Early Chicago. So Chris, here we are still sheltering in place. Yes, week seven. Week seven, Patrick, of sheltering at home. Right. And we're trying to get out yet another episode and stay faithful, at least reasonably so, to our schedule. So we took the last part of our second interview with Ann Dirk and Keating. She's a historian from North Central College in Naperville. Yeah. And she's a history professor there. Yes. Ann, who uh, is the great writer and historian, and we've had the honor and privilege of interviewing her several times. And she's the best. She knows everything. And she takes us basically from after the War of 1812 right up into the Chicago Fire in 1871. That whole period, which there isn't a whole lot of writings about. Talking about not having the history from that, there's the Chicago Historical Society, which is now Chicago History Museum. And there headquarters was downtown and in part of the fire area on the north side. The society was started in 1856. It was one of the earliest city historical societies in the United States, which most of that collection got burned up in 1871, which is why we don't have a lot of history from that early period. Yeah, that's quite right. Prior to the fire. A lot of primary documents were destroyed during that fire, and we, we talk more about that. Which you've got a full episode coming on that. Well, if you think about it, I mean, Chicagoans were kind of presumptuous. I mean, the city was incorporated in uh, 1837, right? And then they're like, oh, we have to have a historical society. I mean, for us, we're glad they did, right? It's, I don't know, sort of, there's an arrogance there that I I kind of appreciate. And yeah, interesting tidbit that Chicago did not have a public library, though, until after the fire of 1871. That's right, and because the frontiersmen didn't really think that was part of their mission. <laughs> so anyway, so let's get into this conversation with Ann Dirk and Keating, episode 13, Early Chicago. We'll jump right into it. Okay. Can I back up just yeah, a little please. bit? You know, when Fort Dearborn is founded 1803. in 1803, Chicago and Illinois are the edge. The Louisiana Purchase hadn't happened. And then Louisiana Purchase is going to double the size of the country, and that actually changes the dynamic then of how Chicago is going to fit in. It's not going to be an Indian country, but you can't really see that from the vantage point of that moment. During these years, the U.S. has doubled in size. After the War of 1812, in 1815 then in that Treaty of St. Louis, Native Americans have really lost out. So the American government 
basically is going to demand that the SOC, the Ho-Chunk, the Potawatomi, acknowledge all of the previous sessions that they had been contesting, that all of that land, so it's a good chunk of Illinois and Wisconsin was now in the hands of the US government. So, and the Native Americans sign on to that. Also, the American government demands a corridor along the route of what's going to become the Illinois-Michigan Canal. And that canal zone, that was the dream of Joliet. I mean... Right. We're all the way back there. So the the American, they knew about this and they wanted this, and this was all baked in, so to speak, in in this treaty. Right. So that's a part of the 1815 Treaty of St. Louis. So the Indian boundaries that we've got, that you still see the lines on maps, so south and north, all the way up into Rogers Park. You've got that corridor. So Chicago, after 1815, is a part of land then that the American government is claiming. In 1815 then, Illinois is still a territory. Okay. And the machinations begin with Illinois politicians in Washington to get the northern boundary for Illinois bumped up mm. so that it would definitely include Chicago and all of the canal. So right, there was... John Pope? Yeah, exactly. So we're back to the the early, early guys in the story of Illinois. So Chicago is the plum. Right, right. (laughs) So the idea that Chicago and Illinois don't belong together, the city and the state are joined at the hip. hip. Well, was part of it that they needed the additional population, too, to become a state? They needed the additional population. But But also then give it some... That quarter. Some some water access. That was 1818, I believe. Right, so the statehood comes then. John Kinsey so much wanted that Indian country to be maintained. Mm-hmm. I mean, 1816, John Kinsey and Eleanor have come back to Chicago, and he and Eleanor have sold all the property they can find to pay off the debts that they owe at the end of the War of 1812. But he was impoverished by what was going on during these years, and the end of the fur trade was coming during these years. So the Kinseys, they make a claim They may not even own the houses on the (laughs) land, but they claim the land when it gets transferred from Indian into American hands. It's not because they own the land, because they don't own the land, and they don't necessarily have to own anything else, but they make a preemption claim. You know, when it, that land opens up and no one claims against them. And they, you know, they no know one counterclaims them. And, and the they fact know that. The area. Yeah, that yeah. The, no, you're exactly right. The, and that everyone knows them. And so, yeah. but then when the Americans finally come in, is when his family yeah. gets their wealth. Yeah, um, right. So it's kind of an odd. I, if he'd had more of a sense of that, he might have been more willing to let it change. Yeah. So interesting, you ran into a little piece by Philip Verling. Mm-hmm. Kind of hit and miss on his history, but mm. William Burnett, who supposedly through John Laline, is holding the Kinsey house prior to their taking it over. Right. That there was never really any contract, and he kind of disappears in 1812. Burnett. There's Burnett. Yeah, Burnett. Yeah. Burnett, yeah. And so Verling kind of proposes that Kinsey got an Indian. A Native American to do a hit on Burnett to cover his tracks so that then now the Leem is dead, Burnett is dead, and so he can now lay claim to that land where the Kinsey estate. See, and Verling is, I think, has got 
some really interesting ideas. He and does. think uh, because we don't have enough documents yeah. to, in so, the end, settle this. Yeah, exactly. He's, it ends he's up being t- swirling t- t- tantalizing suggestions. Yes. The big thing here, though, is to keep in mind is that the Kinsey's win regardless of yeah. how that happens. And it's after John Kinsey's dead. I mean, John Kinsey dies January of 1828. So yeah. he's out of this picture. And then the canal, it's kind of sketched out, but they don't really start working on it until much later. Right? No. So the canal... Well, they work on the funding of it for a long time, right? Right. And the Illinois-Michigan Canal that we're talking about. Right. Commission is created, I think, 1829. Okay. And so in 1830, you get the first survey, right? So Thompson's survey of the Chicago area. They're going to survey land that the federal government has given the state to use for this canal. The commissioners will then survey this land, and then they start selling it. Mm-hmm. So what's downtown Chicago is sold as canal lands. And then when they sell those lands, that's supposed to be used to finance the canal. Kind of like the railroads, we're funded the same way. I yeah. yeah, going west. That's going exactly west, right. Yeah, this right. model is absolutely the one that's going okay. to be used for the railroads. Or the Illinois Central Railroad with I Stephen see. Douglas a little bit later. Exactly yeah, so yeah, the same model. Wide swath of land right. through the right-of-way, and then you can start to sell lots on right. either side of the right. actual canal or railroad. Yeah. So 1830, Alexander Wilcock claims a big chunk of the territory in the near north side, and John Harris Kinsey and Julia Kinsey's, they get their... It's 106 acres land on the near north side that then makes them richer than they could have imagined very quickly. Yeah, Wolcott is Wolcott marries one of John Kinsey's daughters, so it's Julia Kinsey's sister-in-law, and then Alexander Wolcott. That's Julia Kinsey's uncle. Alexander Wolcott dies in 1830. Okay. So his story kind of tragically just ends there. So the treaty that moves the Potawatomi from Chicago, is is that like 1831? Yeah, the final treaty is 1833. 1833, okay. Yeah. So that's when basically the city, it's not a city then, it's a, a town. 1833 then is the last piece, to your point, is the last piece, and it's all of the land in southeast Wisconsin and northeast Illinois. The Potawatomi in, say, the 1821 Treaty of Chicago, which granted reservation lands in Michigan to Potawatomi, those reservation lands stand down to the present. Part of that being the Pokagon That's exactly uh, right. That's exactly right. Mentioned the letter That's exactly wrote. right. So in Indiana and in Michigan, you've got Potawatomi reservation lands. There's no reservation land in Illinois. The treaty in Chicago in 1833 is the first treaty after the Indian Removal Act, and that's really a function of Andrew Jackson. So that means it's the first treaty where Native Americans that are being treated with are not going to be offered reservation lands east of the Mississippi River. They're only going to be offered lands west of the Mississippi River. The removal of the Potawatomi is really 1835-1836, and it really is a removal. And that's what you say in your book. That's the stuff people don't talk about. Right. Americans don't discuss this. Right. The thousands of people were forcibly moved out of this area. So that we could have it. So that we could have it. Yeah. Or the treaties were written where you could, quote, buy it from them, but the decks were loaded. Right. Yeah. Right. So the Ulm Mets had a rough time here. Alexander Robinson, I mean, they all have quite a bit of trouble. Billy Caldwell will move west. They Caldwell just, Woods. And they, Caldwell Woods is a part of the land that Caldwell 
actually had gotten in, and he, but not as a Native American, but as a Métis. Oh, right. So his father was British. So all of the land grants that came through in the treaty in 1829, none of them are reservation lands for Native Americans. They're all grants of land that go to mixed race people. Yeah, it's interesting how these treaties would come in. My sense was around this period, that's oftentimes how the traders got paid. They had all these debts with the tribes. Had The tribes had amassed these debts actually by design, by Jefferson's approach. And so then you have an Indian treaty where you then buy them out. And while you're negotiating that treaty, you trader, you know, Chris Lynch, come up and say, well, you know, the Potawatomi owe me this much. And so I'd like that settled out. And so the Potawatomi will say, well, we need this then to cover Chris. And so then you either get some land or money or both. Yeah, and that's no. how you that's how you collect on your debt. So in each one of these treaties, you're absolutely right. The U.S. government is compensating Mm -hmm. traders far more than they're going to be compensating Native Americans. And the big winner in this region in the 1820s and 1830s is the American Fur Company. Mm -hmm. So John Jacob Astor walks away with buckets of cash at the end of the fur trade. So it's not like the fur trade is worth a whole lot if there are no furs to be traded, but he's cashing out. All this debt has accumulated for decades. And and they cash out, and then he's going to go, and what does he do with that money? He invests it in Manhattan real estate. So And then, so the guys that come back here are the ones that are thinking, oh, we can do this too, right? So they're going to turn it around. Okay, back in the studio. Chris, we should also pop in here again and talk about the Wilmettes. Yes, who are famous in this region as having a very nice suburb named after them, although they changed the spelling a bit. Well, I would always pronounce it O-U-Mets because it's O-U-I. It's, yeah, O-U-I-L-M-E-T-T-E. But in French, you know, that's we, yes. Ulmets, I guess. Ulmets. It's an unusual name, and they were very much a part of the early Chicago scene. Yes, Anton Olmet was a trader. He came to Chicago in July of 1790, uh, according to his statement, and built a cabin on the north bank of the Chicago River, a short distance west of the one owned by Point de Sable. And his neighbors were Lamai and Patel, and he provided ferry service across the river, horses out for hire, and guiding expertise to make it through the Chicago portage and shuttle goods back and forth, I think was one of his main endeavors, and would be an augmentation to Point de Sable. And would whatever John Kinsey's adventures or efforts were doing, and he was married Archange Marie Chavier yeah. in, in 1796. Well, we know the Umets or the, the Wil- Wilmets because the property they were granted in treaties, this is from the Treaty of Prairie du Chien of 1829, is basically parts of Evanston and what is known as Wilmette to this day. That was their property. Yes. And then if you are driving up along Northwestern's campus, clinging to the lake, you're going to hit Gross Point Lighthouse. Well, Gross Point is the name of their property. Thomas Owen was managing a small trading post at Gross Point during the early 1830s. Ah, so that would have been Wilmette's 
farm or land that they're referencing there. Uh, the Chicago genealogist describes the Wilmette Reservation as having been 1,580 acres large. Right, and it says this is a letter from Alexander McDaniel who visited the Olmet homestead, and he writes, quote, On the 14th of August, 1836, I left Chicago in the morning, and about noon I brought up at the house of Anton Olmet. Mm-hmm. The place was called Gross Point about 14 miles north from Chicago on the lakeshore. The house that the Ometz family then occupied was a large, hewed log blockhouse considered in those days good enough for a very congressman to live in. At least I thought so when I was dispatching the magnificent meal of vegetables grown on the rich soil which the young ladies of the house had prepared for me. The children were nearly white, very calmly, well-dressed, and intelligent. Josette, in fact, had obtained quite a reputation as a beauty. The Umets owned cattle, horses, wagons, carriages, and farming implements, working a large tract of land, unquote. You know, they were basically kind of the French landed gentry in the Chicago area here, or on the North Shore in particular. Right, and it says here, like you said, it was 1,580 acres large, of which some 300 now fall in the city limits of Evanston and 1,280 fall into the suburb of Wilmette. Here's the borders. Southern boundary at Central Street in Evanston, eastern boundary at the Lakeshore, northern boundary at the level of Elmwood Avenue in Wilmette, and the western boundary at the level of 15th Street in Wilmette. And interesting, just like Billy Caldwell, the family was involved early in the Catholic community. And his name was on the petition by Chicago citizens to Bishop Rosati of St. Louis asking that a priest be assigned to them. Fascinating. When the Potawatomi were relocated west of the Mississippi in 1835, Anton and Archange followed them in late 1836 or later. And Archange died at Council Bluffs, Iowa in November 1840. And Anton died in on December eighteenth, eighteen forty one. Eighteen thirty three then is the last piece to your point, and then you get the first big wave of Eastern speculators in real estate. So that idea of turning this land into real estate, eighteen thirty three then becomes pivotal. This is when the New Yorkers show up. Exactly right. This is when Charles Butler and... William Moggin? Well, William Moggin's going to come a couple of years later, but Charles Butler is his brother-in-law. So Charles Butler's the advanced advanced team team for this. It's Arthur Bronson and Charles Butler come out, and they start buying land, and it's the Kinsey's. So the Kinsey's have managed to translate their land. The problem is that the bottom falls out of the real estate market. Mm in 1836-37, shortly after they'd actually started building the canal. Internationally, there was a financial crash, right? Yeah, it's a terrible depression. And in Chicago then, Kinsey's lose a lot of their money. All the folks that were speculating in real estate are going to lose a lot of money, except for a lot of the deep pockets from New York that just sit on their land. And of course, it all comes back in value within a decade or so. So the canal takes a long time to build. Imagine right now buying something and being like, oh, I'm going to wait 10 years to then cash in. Sort of like you a got to have some deep pockets. You got to have the deep the pockets. Taxes or what, you know, whatever it is that you involve. Kind of like a third airport's kind of our canal 
in the, the you always hear people talk about right, it. Right, where it's going to be. And it's, you know, 20 years have gone right. by and nothing's happened. Right, right, right. But if you could figure out where that route was going to be. Yeah. Buy that and land you had the now, inside, right? you get to buy that land. Yeah. But you got to have deep enough pockets sure. to be able to sit on. People do. that. I yeah. mean, that's just right, right. from the get-go. Yeah. This is the Chicago story. And wealth begets wealth. You got it. Chris, we should cut in here and talk about these two guys that, Dr. Keating mentions Charles Butler and Arthur Bronson. Yes, these gentlemen are fascinating to read about. And they end up buying land here, speculating. Yes. Speaking of early Chicago, as our title for this episode, I went back to that book that's entitled Early Chicago by Ulrich Donkers, a retired dentist and uh, sadly no longer with us, and Jane Meredith who co-authored and helped him with some illustrations in that book and captured their biographies of Charles Butler and Arthur Bronson. And they note that during the winter of 1832-1833, Butler met Robert A. Kinsey, who was visiting New York, and offered Chicago real estate. Uh, Robert Kinsey, of course, is one of the sons of John Kinsey's first marriage. In 1833, there are New Yorkers that come in to Chicago. Yeah, Patrick, I really appreciate Butler's description of coming into Chicago. And he writes, quote, From Michigan City to Chicago, a distance of about 60 miles, the journey was performed by me on horseback. There was but one stopping place on the way, and that was the house of a Frenchman named Bailey, who had married an Indian woman at Calumet River, which was crossed on a float, there was an encampment of Potawatomi Indians. There were some trees on the westerly bank of the river, and in some of these, the Indians had hammocks. In making the journey from Michigan City to Chicago, I followed the shore of the lake nearly the whole distance. I approached Chicago in the afternoon on a beautiful day, the 2nd of August, 1833. The sun setting in a cloudless sky. On my left lay the prairie, bounded only by the distant horizon like a vast expanse of ocean. On my right, in the summer stillness, lay Lake Michigan. I had never seen anything more beautiful or captivating in nature. There was an entire absence of animal life, nothing visible in the way of human habitation or to indicate the presence of man, and yet it was a scene full of life, for there spread out before me in every direction, as far as the eye could reach, were the germs of life in earth, air, and water. I just love that description. Yeah. You're much better reading that stuff than I am. You, you've had practice. Well. Your radio days are showing. <laughs> well, I'll read the second part, too. Yeah. So he, he approaches the city, and then he, he talks about nature, right? And then he enters the city. So I'll pick it up there. Quote, I approach Chicago in these closing hours of day, so calm, so clear, so bright. And this was the realization of the objective point of my journey. But what was the condition to this objective point, the Chicago of which I was in pursuit, to which I had come? A small settlement, a few hundred people, all told, who had come together mostly in the last year or two. The houses, with one or two exceptions, were of the cheapest and most primitive character for human habitation, suggestive of the haste with which they had been put up. 
A string of these buildings had been erected without much regard to the lines on the south side of the Chicago River. That's South Water Street. On the west side of the South Branch near the junction, a tavern had been improvised for the entertainment of travelers, erected by James Kinsey, but kept by a Mr. Crook. That Crook, Patrick, is that David Clock? Yeah, it's an editor's note. Okay, so he just got the spelling wrong. Okay. So, and there we found lodgings. Emigrants were coming in almost every day in wagons of various forms, and in many instances families were living in their covered wagons while arrangements were made for putting up shelters for them. Just a side note, Patrick, nobody's coming by canoe. Oh, right. The second episode, The Great Portage, we've spent so much time on. Oh, well. Well, or he doesn't say, right? He doesn't say. It was no uncommon thing for a house such as would answer the purpose for the time being to be put in in a few days. Mr. Bronson himself made a contract for a house to be put up and finished in a week. There were perhaps from two to 300 people in Chicago at that time, mostly strangers to each other. In the tavern at which we stayed, the partitions were chiefly upright studs with sheets attached to them. The house was crowded with people, immigrants and travelers. Many of them could only find a sleeping place on the floor, which was covered with weary men at night. The east window of my bedroom looked out upon Lake Michigan in the distance. Fort Dearborn, lying near the margin of the lake, and at this time there was nothing of which little to obstruct the view between the inn and the lake, the fort and the buildings connected with it being the principal objects. Now, we should just say, Patrick, this is not the Fort Dearborn of infamy. Right. This is the second Fort Dearborn that was rebuilt in 1816 after the War of 1812. Right. And also, just sort of as a joke, he's talking about Mr. Bronson hiring someone to build a cheap house in a week. I wonder if anyone was getting any building permits here. Oh, no. Right. And you, who works in the building department yeah, for the city. I have a feeling that... Well, uh, there were no permits being pulled here. Yeah, well, there was no city government. You know, it was just a town in 1833. Right, exactly, right. You did what you wanted. But I imagine here's Charles Butler coming to Chicago. He's in his early 30s, 31 or 32. And his bedroom has a window, right? So... Clearly, he is not slumming it with the masses and is probably paying a premium price to have his own bedroom, this kind of New York dandy coming in to speculate on land. You can imagine he probably created a, a stir among, say, the commoners, as he might have referred to them. Yeah, he was an Eastern dude. Right. And he does comment about the other houses. He, picking up where I left off, he says, and those buildings were very low structures. And I could, from my window, follow the course of the river, the water of which was as pure as that of the lake, from the point of junction to its entrance into the lake. Of course, he's talking about the Chicago River. That's just a magnificent description of the city. And, you know, I've never seen that letter before. Right, right. It was really interesting. And then Arthur Bronson has a comment as well in, in this. Again, this is captured in that book, Early Chicago where he expressed his faith in Chicago's promise and says, quote, If I were a young man and unmarried, I would settle down at Chicago. It presents one of the finest fields in America for industry and enterprise, and though at present 
A journey to this point is attended with great privations, fatigue, exposure, and difficulty. In a few years, we will think no more of going to Chicago than we now think of going to Buffalo. <laughs> Interesting. There will be lines of steamships, stages, and railroads the entire distance from Albany to the fort at St. Louis on the Mississippi, Chicago being an important and commanding point on this great thoroughfare. And he wrote this in 1834. He was right. He was a, a man of vision, except he didn't mention airplanes because no one had the power of imagination to think that a hundred years from when he wrote that, people would be flying over th that city. Right, right. 1834, I mean, a couple generations and you're into the 20th century. Sure. And at that point, Chicago and St. Louis were the California of that day. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that this primitive town in less than 100 years and in, in just 40 years would just be going gangbusters. Yes. And Anne talks about that too. And later on in the episode, we ask her about the fire and, and she does say that people like Juliet Kinsey, the city that she knew of, the city of her youth, was gone. Right. You know, that 20, 30 years, that was the transformation of of the city. That's the part that, that a lot of these early Chicagoans knew. Yes, it's pretty amazing. And I was just going back and looking at this. It's 1834 that... Arthur Bronson purchases 80 acres from Captain David Hunter. Then you have Charles Butler in 1835. A year later, he buys 50 acres for $100,000 from Bronson. In 1837, then there was an international crash, and the real estate market in Chicago uh, also crashes. Julia Kinsey, she's a remarkable woman in that she's going to come in and I would say she's a big piece of why Chicago grows. It's a real estate deal, but it's also they have to come in and actually build a city. It's those families like Juliet and her cohort that do well, that. So they make their money in the Treaty of 1833, so the family gets a lot of money, a good portion of it going back to 1812 and saying, for those guns and the liquor that got dumped down into the well, they finally get, the yeah, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in this treaty. And then the second thing is that they can claim land. So wow. they claim this land, and those two things allow them to become one of the wealthiest families in Chicago right at the outset. And her, she had a house that you talked about because we we saw your book talk right at the Chicago uh, Women's History Center. History, yeah, which I didn't know existed. So if people it's a wonderful chance, spot in, in Humboldt Park. Yeah, and they build this big brick house right there. And what's there right now? What block? So it was Cass in Michigan, okay. Cass, which is now Wabash, okay, and Hubbard. Oh. It was called Michigan Street. Yeah. So now Wabash and Hubbard. Actually, today, it's two levels down. It's a parking lot. It's a stone's thrown north of Trump Tower. 
Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. So sure. it's just west yeah. of the Billy Goat Tavern. You got it. That's exactly yeah. where it is. Nicely yeah, done. I'm going right to keep. There. I'm going to keep that one in mind. That's a good way yeah. to describe this. Well, I was just there the other day for an author event. So yeah, that will do it. So I was having a drink not too far from, from where, where Julia Kinsey is. Yeah. Lived. For yeah, and not too far then from where Jean Baptiste Point du Sable's yeah, right. would have been, how, would have been just a little there. bit east of there. So yeah. they're all right there in that right area. Right there at the Billy Goat Tavern, possibly. Right. So by 1833, then John Kinsey, so the son of the John Kinsey that we've been talking about, is the first town president. So John Harris Kinsey in 1833. Okay. Okay. But then William Ogden is one of these newcomers who's looking after real estate interests from New York. He's a Nayaka. And he comes in in 1836. I think he was in upstate New York. And in, <laughs> and in 1837, he's elected mayor. And the first mayor. So right. he's wise in a couple of ways, but one of the big ones is he's a Democrat. Hmm. So John Harris Kinsey will be a, a Whig, and he's a Whig because his family has got this strong allegiance to people like William Henry Harrison, right? Because sure, William right. Henry Harrison yeah. becomes the first Whig president. Right. And when year is that? 1840. Okay, wow. So, so that's pretty it's tippy, right. It's canoe and Tyler too. You got it. Well, so yeah, this right. is so the idea that the allegiance that was built up potentially in 1812 when with that Louis murder and the, the connections here with Harrison that come with the War of 1812 play out politically in the 1830s. So Ogden comes in as the Democrat, and John Harris Kinsey will be aligned with people like Abraham Lincoln yeah. in the Whig Party, right. mm-hmm. but they're going to be the losing party. Stephen Douglas. Right, where Stephen Douglas yeah. and William Ogden are, the Democrats will control this world until the late 1850s. And then Ogden finances or somehow sells shares to the first railroad. Right. So Ogden comes in and he moves to Chicago after initially being dismayed that his brother-in-law had bought all this swamp land. And he just becomes an enormous booster of Chicago. And he has the money to invest in a variety of things. So he sees that his family's investments in real estate will be enhanced if he can boom the town. His work is important here. Not the only person whose work is important, but he, he certainly does that. So he's instrumental in helping to bring a railroad. So the Galena, Galena and Chicago yeah. Railroad in 1848. So the first station will be built north of the river. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The first railroad bridge will be over the north branch. Was it the Galena and Chicago Union? Galena and Chicago. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Which it never reached Galena, too, I recall. It was kind of an irony of it until later it became the The Northwestern. Chicago Northwestern Railway. Right. William Ogden, he helps to attract McCormick to come into Chicago to start the Reaper factory. He certainly becomes International Harvester. Which becomes International Harvester. The Board of Trade that's going to organize, big booster of the Illinois and Michigan Canal. And he also digs two canals in Chicago proper. Right, for Goose Island that wind up right. Canal. Ogden Canal. And then um, the slip, too. And then the Ogden Slip, or the Michigan Slip, which is just north of the mouth of the Chicago River. Right, still right there. Right where that north pier is. Yeah. Navy hey. Pier is just, you know, east of that. Let's break in here for a minute, Karis, and talk about Goose Island. I love the beer. <laughs> well, and before it became known as a, one of the early micropubs, microbrews of Chicago, and then later was acquired by a larger beer company and had national distribution, it was basically a bend in the river 
uh, of the north branch of the Chicago River that William Ogden in the 1860s cut a canal across. Well, that's interesting because didn't Ogden, you talk with Dan about this, he was very instrumental in building a pier on the lakefront as well. Yeah, so there was a that was another short canal going from the lakefront back into the city. And it's just north of the mouth of the Chicago River, what became the Chicago Dredge and Dock Company in that North Pier building full of uh, shops and retail space now uh, was an industrial building and the headquarters for the Dredge and Dock, which did a lot of the dredging of the river and the lake to dredge and widen uh, or improve Chicago. They built a lot of the foundations for the bridges in Chicago early on. Now, Patrick, you give bridge tours of the Chicago River occasionally, and you go up to Goose Island, don't you? On occasion. It's been a while since I've had a chance to do that. It's interesting how that's the only island in the Chicago River, and it's man-made by Ogden cutting that canal to the east side of this, what was originally a bend in the river. And I understand, too, by some of the research I did on my book, Chicago River Bridges, that some of the dredging from building that canal was then used in brickmaking. So that may still exist in some form here in Chicago as reused brick. That's interesting because the bricks of Chicago are very sought after by developers because you know how they have that burnt orange look to them, color? Yeah, they're known as common brick. We have some on on my condo building. Well, the trouble is in order to get that color, you need to use really terrible chemicals for the environment. Oh, and right. so right. they don't make those anymore because you can't. So what happens is when buildings are demolished, there's side business where the bricks are preserved and sold. And again, a lot of them wind up as beautiful patios and whatnot because, again, the color is very attractive. Got an earthy feel to it. Very, it looks very natural. Plus, there's, there's no glazing on the outside of it. No, it, it's a funny side effect of early Chicago. And then Goose Island also, it got its name, actually, because a lot of the Irish immigrants, and, and that land was originally I&M Canal land. And William Ogden and a group of investors bought that parcel around Goose Island. And the idea was to put the canal in as a way to then allow more dockage and, and riparian rights that then would make it more attractive. And they also then took whatever tillings and dredge material that couldn't be used for bricks and put that on the land around it so it would help pull it up out of the swamp somewhat. So uh, that created that island at Goose Island. And the Irish had initially gravitated towards that area. And they're supposedly, uh, according to a Tribune article, raised geese in the area. And they would often let the geese go out for sort of a walk or a swim in the river. And it then got that moniker, Goose Island. Well, you know, it's interesting because, I don't know, there's something about William Ogden. Everything this guy touched turned to gold. And even today, I mean, Goose Island, that real estate is so valuable. It's just ironic that guys like Ogden, they had the touch, you know. 
he he must have been very shrewd as well. And as Ann Durkin Keating says in her talk that we went to, Juliet Kinsey had some real battles, legal battles, with William Ogden uh, over the dowry rights in some of the land deals in Chicago. Pick up her book that you can delve into that a little further. So Yeah, and of course, he outlived Juliet Kinsey. I mean, he, as we discuss in upcoming episode on the fire, he's very much affected by the Great Chicago Fire, as well as his lumber yard in Peshtigo, Wisconsin, which burns the mm. same day. Mm. I didn't realize that he had a lumber yard in Peshtigo. He had financial interests all over the place. He was in the railroads. He was in the canal. He had land development. He was mayor for a time. He was the first mayor. Yeah, of the city. Yeah, and then the Dredge and Dock Company, he was involved in that initially. So he had his fingers in all kinds of things. And he has a great street named after him, too. There you go. All right, so let's get back to our discussion with Ann. This is a big year, 1848. 1848 is a pivotal year. You mentioned the first telegraph. First telegraph into Chicago is coming in 1848. The canal has finished the railroad. There's a big convention held in Chicago to try and improve the harbor. So Abraham Lincoln... 1847 is the harbor convention. Yeah, so they're working on getting those improvements. Somebody was telling me about that. It was a massive coup for Chicago... To get that. To get that. Because they had people from across the country. Yeah, it's the first time people, Chicago. right. It was a, a major turning point because one, we had people come to Chicago to see what it was. And two, they secured the financing to really solidify those piers that created the mouth of the Chicago River to become a harbor and port of entry. Because then, what that's 1847, 40 years later, it's the busiest port in the world right. with 21,000 ships coming in and out of the Chicago River. Did they get rid of the sandbar by then? Oh, oh. The, the sandbar's earlier. So the sandbar's in the 1830s, and that's actually well, another testament to and, Chicago. And even some of the soldiers of the forts supposedly dug it out that. Yeah, in you're right. 1829. Okay, Because that's the sandbar that goes down to about Randolph Street. Yeah. Right. And again, this is in the 1830s when Jackson is president, and he's saying no improvements coming from the federal government, internal improvements should be done within states, big on states' rights. Chicago gets federal dollars (laughs) to make harbor improvements in the 1830s. These are huge projects. You need a federal government. I I mean, hindsight. But see, the reason that Chicago gets those projects is because the investors who come in have got Clout. I mean, (laughs) those New Yorkers who come in and make these investments, they also know the people in D.C. to get the money for what they need. I mean, I'm always amazed. This goes back. They're wired in. To some of the research that I did on who provided the provisions for Fort Dearborn. The contract was a man named Porter who was an upstate New Yorker. So he obviously had connections to the federal government to get the contract to all the forts in the Great Lakes. And that was, of course, then a natural stepping off point from the water route, from basically around Buffalo. Well, you had the Erie Canal. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, that's why... And she, then, yeah, and then you had the Erie Canal. That's why Chicago has a street named Clinton Street because of the governor of New York, right. DeWitt Clinton, that helped build ah, the Erie Canal. I, I don't that. think New York has a street name for a Chicago one. 
probably not. A Chicago mayor or uh, or governor. I, I bet you they don't. I, no, they, they would have no need for it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're the ones that gave us the moniker. That's exactly the city. right. Because DeWitt yeah. was mayor of New York and governor. Right. And the Erie Canal was his baby, so... Yeah. At least Chicagoans uh, reflect that. Well, and that made Chicago the next jumping off point to go further west. And that's why guys like Stephen Douglas from Vermont were able to get on the Erie Canal and come out here. Oh, I didn't realize he was from Vermont. Yeah. yeah. When did he arrive in Chicago, do we know, roughly? He goes first to Quincy. So he's on oh, the Mississippi River. So he comes in, I want to say, 31 or 32. Okay. And so he represents Quincy in the state legislature, and then he becomes a judge. So through the 1840s, he's a judge. And then he's elected senator from Illinois, Democratic senator from Illinois in 1847. Oh, so it's, again, same, another, same, same yeah. another one to tie in there. The little giant. And it's at that point that he moves to Chicago. Okay. That's when the money really starts to flow. So he buys a big chunk of real estate on the south side where it's his monument. Uh, monument is, where he's buried ah. at 35th Street. Well, that's worth a trip. You know what's yeah. ironic about that? I'll just, as an aside, he was a man that argued pro slavery positions. His monument is in Bronzeville. Yeah. Which I think is so. Ah. It's, talk, I mean, I think it's sweet, sweet. So it's like 31st and what? What's the cross street? It's 35th. It's just shy of the pedestrian bridge over yes. the icy tracks. We, we have the, to go down there, Patrick. Oh, I've, yeah. I've yeah. been down there. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It's the st- We own it. The state owns it, okay, and it's yeah. a mess. But that's, uh, <laughs> well, that's that new 35th Street bridge that yes. has that beautiful The beautiful bridge. A- it's can, a beautiful bridge. Yeah. It's really worth walking oh, yeah. the bridge. You can walk to the... I've been on it. I've ridden on yeah. Lakeshore Drive yeah. portion. Yeah. And it's just it's it's just short of that, it's just right north there. of it. It, oh, okay. it almost leads right Next time I'm down there, I'll just have to go over the bridge. You can ride your bike down there. I have, and I will. So again, that was that 1847, 1848 era. Chicago is just like a... On, yeah, Douglas is coming in, and that's a good point. That's, it's on fire, so to speak. That. I mean, it'll be on fire later. But yeah, it's, but no, 48, yeah. 47, 48 is really big. That's the, the big paradigm shift, to use Patrick's word. So, Anne, maybe, I, maybe one last quote from you. So I'm going to totally jump here, but... Juliet Kinsey dies in 1870. Right. Had she lived, had right. she not been in Long Island, right? if you could get in her mind, how would she have reacted to the Chicago Fire or these other pioneering families? What, what must it have been like? You, you know, I think one of the things to say about that is that world that Juliet built was already gone. Oh. You know, that to some degree, what started in 1848, she comes in in the 1830s, 1840s, what starts in 1848 with industrialization and the transportation growth, Chicago growth of Chicago as a railroad hub, as an immigrant center, industrial center, 1850s and the 1860s just transformed the city. You know, I mean, it goes from 30,000 people in 1830 to 100,000 in in 1860 to 300,000 in 1870. It grows dramatically, and that downtown area that's her place, yeah. which is what's going to burn, yeah, right. is by 1870, increasingly industrial. Warehouses, I mean, the grain elevators are all along the river there, dusty, dirty. The sands, the, for lack of a better term, the red light district, and then, you know what I mean, was just to the east. So this is a... the levee? Well, the sands, they call... Oh, oh, this is sand. So the levee is south. You really see that emerging after the fire. Okay, So, you know, just this whole... sands, which then later becomes Streeterville. That's... You've got the place. You've got got the place. 
Okay, back in the studio. Streeterville and in the Sands, which was known prior to the fire, there's a website, the Chicago Crime Scene Project, and this one's from in December 2008, and it's titled The Sands, the area north of the Chicago River near the lakeshore was originally populated by saloons and inexpensive motels for the sort popular among seafaring men working the docks of the river or passing through Chicago on some merchant vessel. By the 1850s, however, the area had developed into the toughest criminal district in the city known as the Sands and was composed of almost entirely of gambling dens, brothels, occupying about 30 poorly constructed shacks which had the unfortunate tendency to burn down or simply fall apart on a regular basis. Drunkenness, fighting, robbery, murder, and general misbehavior was the order of the day every day in the sands, and the besooted residents of the district were the bane of the town's respectable population. Anne Stafford was a famous dozen of the sands brothel. Another resident, Margaret McGinnis, is said was not sober for five years straight and did not bother to wear clothes for three of those years. Oh, boy. <laughs> anyway... And again, here's William Ogden, right? In April of 1857, William Ogden, and Long John Wentworth was the mayor at the time, Ogden managed to purchase several properties in the Sands, and he immediately ordered the squatters living in the properties out, but they refused to budge, and he begged help of Mayor Wentworth, who was only too happy to see an opportunity to eliminate the hated vice district. So on April 20th, Wentworth organized and advertised a major horse race at a Chicago racetrack. Oh, this is classic Chicago. Most of the male residents of the Sands were, were gamblers, so the event attracted the substantial majority of their population. While the men were gone, Wentworth and Ogden crossed over to the Sands, accompanied by a team of horses. After serving eviction notices, the horse team was hitched to the foundations of several of the shanties. Each was pulled down. This led to a small riot, with the remaining residents of the Sands running into the streets, looting their neighbors' properties, and destroying most of the rest of the district in the process. A few hours later, what was left went up in flames. The next day, the Tribune reported a fanciful hope. This congregation of the vilest haunts of the most depraved and degraded creatures in our city has been literally wiped out, and the miserable beings who swarmed there were driven away. Thereafter, we hope the Sands will be the abode of the honest and industrious, and that efficient measures will be taken to prevent any other portion of the city from becoming the abode of another such gathering of vile and vicious persons. Apparently the last sentence was a wishful thinking, but curiously, it is the Tribune building itself that sits on the property that was once the Sands. Julia Kinsey's, but she would have been devastated because yeah. in the end, that's her house with Burns. Her church. The, her church, the lake house, all the things that were the touchstones of her life and were her all disappeared. Was, so she was helped found St. James Episcopal Church, which was originally right across the street from her house. Okay. And you were telling us it's still there. Well, Part by, of it. yeah, by 1858, St. James has moved north. Oh, so, okay. So okay. what? So what's okay. happened is it was right across the street from her house, and then they sell that property and they move further north because people have moved up into the near north, right, right. where there are bigger houses and 
further away from the industry oh, and the and river like, and everything they else. They like up near Graceland Cemetery. That's, so too. they're yeah, exactly. So they're moving further north. So I think that's the other thing is potentially it would have given her the insurance money to build the house see, up now north. Now you're thinking like a Kinsey. Yeah, that's exactly right. right. And then they would have re yeah, no, you're exactly right. There would have been this possibility <laughs> of it all going up. That's yeah. <laughs> see we put more angles. Yeah. More angles to play. Yeah. And the rest would be history. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's the amazing thing that the people that really built this town, a lot of them witnessed that fire. Yes. And my favorite anecdote is the Palmer house where it was built, I think, a week before. It just opened, right. And then it burned the ground. And I think legend has it that Mr. Palmer said, build it again. That was almost like a John Kinsey, keep moving. Right. Keep, let's keep going. Right. This isn't going to really stop the story. And it doesn't no, really it stop doesn't. the story. I mean, the fire it. in that way, the fire does not stop Chicago's story. Yeah. Um, if anything, it, it gives it a level playing field for people to come in and speculate and redevelop. And, I, I think that's absolutely right. It's seen as an opportunity by an awful lot of people. And then 22 years later, there's the World's Fair. So we go from nothing to one of the greatest spectacles people have ever seen. Right. It's a shock city, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a place that's growing so rapidly yeah. in those it's just, decades. It's just amazing. D- very different story. You know, it's hard yeah. to imagine that you go back to the decades before the Civil War. It's just hard to imagine by 1893, by the world. Yeah, in one generation. It's the same world. And the world comes here. Well, right. And Chicago wow. did experience the world's greatest growth, most right. rapid growth right. of any city in the world. Right. Uh, or yeah. in history. Right. Or at least I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, and I, I suspect I, it's it's why going to China now would be interesting because right. there are places that have grown like that. To, I think it's mention, the only thing that's akin to that. To yeah. what Funny you got. should mention that because Dominic Basiga told us when we interviewed him, his biography of Chicago right. has just been translated into Chinese. Yes. Well done. So I thought, why not? Because you're right. Maybe China's sort of the Shanghai might be the Chicago. Of, you of, got it. No, I think there's there are real there are real connections in that way. Well, yeah. we've consumed another two or three hours of your life. <laughs> Sorry. To, oh my gosh, we have really. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> Thing is, Anne, we just have to reiterate: everyone needs to read your books, yeah. including your new book on Juliet Kinsey, right. which is wonderful, and we'll post link to it. On yeah, it. Julia Kinsey, you know, did a lot of the, the history that we've talked about. So she yeah. took a stab at this. You know, you wrestle with the fact that her stories very much paint her family in a very positive light. But she offers us arguably the first history yeah. that we can get our hands on. You need the foundation. You got to read Rise from Indian Country and the Julia Kinsey book. So thank well, thank you. you. Thank you for talking. Yes. Oh, it's so really been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians podcast, episode 13, Early Chicago. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.